Listener Production. Hello, Sasha Barber-Gout with you. Just before we get to today's episode, the team that brings you the briefing is part of the listener team. And Antoinette Latouf and I just wanted to tell you about a brand new podcast we've just launched called Nest of Traders. Yeah, it's super exciting and it features our friend and colleague Joey Watson and his three-year journey to uncover an Australian spy who ended up working for the KGB during the Cold War. Everyone's raving about it, and we know our listeners love their podcast. So check it out. It's called Nest of Traders, and it's part of the Secrets We Keep series. We know you'll love it, but Sasha, let's get into today's episode. The federal government last month announced it will amend the legislated Stage 3 tax cuts scheduled to commence on July 1, 2024. Childcare workers, disability carers and aged care workers are some of the most likely to benefit. And a lot of those roles are traditionally women's roles. So what do the tax cuts look like for women? The proposed plan that we've put to the parliament today will significantly improve the situation for women taxpayers. So under the former arrangements, under the Morrison plan, the vast majority of the tax cuts went to men and that's really because they were targeted at high income earners. We're taking a deep dive on the stage three tax cuts and how they will affect you. That's coming up in the second half of the briefing. Before that, Antoinette Latouf, what is making news on Wednesday, February 7? Well, Sasha, we begin in the US where a court has ruled Donald Trump does not have presidential immunity and can, in fact, be prosecuted on charges of trying to overturn the 2020 election. So the former president had said he couldn't face criminal charges for the acts because it happened while he was still in the White House. But a panel of three judges in the US Court of Appeals ruled against him. And this is what they said in the judgment, that we cannot accept former President Trump's claim that a president has unbounded authority to commit crimes that would neutralise the most fundamental check on executive power. So, Sasha, my understanding of that in layman's term is you can't just do whatever you want as president and think you're going to get away with it. <laughs> um, but the ruling has expressed that for the purposes of the criminal charges, he was no longer President Trump, but citizen Trump and the regular rules apply. And I reckon citizen Trump has a cute ring to it. Mm, Sounds like a movie. But on the serious side, this could have really big implications on the election race this year. So this trial that he was appealing against was Mm. supposed to start on March 4. But this ruling by the Court of Appeals has opened up a whole other avenue for appeals. Now, Trump's playbook this year is going to be delay, delay, Mm. delay, delay everything because uh, we chatted with Chaz Lichardello a couple of weeks back and he talked about the fact that if Trump is found guilty on any of these 90 indictments, it's pretty unlikely he's going to get over the line as president, even if he gets the Republican nomination. So uh, we know uh, that he will appeal this decision. Campaign spokesman Stephen Chung says if immunity is not granted to a president, every future president who leaves office will be immediately indicted by the opposing party. It is really interesting, though. Obviously, the tactic is going to be delay, delay. But the whole time this is happening, President Trump is still the front runner as the Republican nominee and could theoretically still become president. And the two things are going to happen concurrently. And now it's a matter of which will happen first. Will these rulings come down or will he be, will he be elected president? It's, it's crazy. 
King Charles has spent time with his estranged son after Prince Harry flew from Los Angeles to London a day after Buckingham Palace announced the king has cancer. It did follow a wave of well wishes from world leaders, including Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, US President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. But here is British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak speaking with the BBC. Thankfully, this has been caught early and now everyone will be wishing him because the treatment that he needs and makes a full recovery. I think that's what we're all hoping and praying for. And I'm, of course, in, in regular contact uh, with him and we'll continue to, to communicate with him as, as normal. So we still haven't been told what type of cancer the king has and a reminder the king is 75 years old only that it was discovered while he was undergoing treatment for an enlarged prostate last month He's also stepping away from official duties while he undergoes treatment, but he was spotted being chauffeured from Clarence House to Sandringham overnight after meeting with Harry. Mm, And Harry flew to London without his wife, Meghan, and two children. He went straight from Heathrow to Clarence House to see his dad. And it was the first time they'd seen each other since the King's coronation last May. I wonder if, uh, you know, a cancer diagnosis kind of puts things into perspective, maybe. Things like weddings, births and funerals, they do have a way of bringing families back together. Um, But it seems, yeah, illnesses can too. Or for the royal family, it's like cancer and coronation can bring families back together momentarily. It does make people speculate about how serious is this cancer Mm. um, for his son to fly back within a day. But, you know, this is me speculation. We don't have any details. Um, And we still also don't know whether official visits to Canada, Australia, New Zealand and Samoa, which are scheduled for later this year, will be going ahead. And reforms that make it unlawful for your boss to insist you be available to take a call or respond to an email will be thrashed out in Parliament this week. The federal government is seeking to get its next round of industrial relations laws through, but the Greens are also pushing for the inclusion of the so-called right to disconnect to be included. So it would basically mean workers could ignore emails, texts and calls from their jobs if they come outside of their work hours. And then if employers insist on them being available, they'll have to pay them. But like most policy shifts, Sasha, there's quite a bit of division among stakeholders. Yeah, you said it. Uh, Politicians, industry groups and unions have all had their say. And of course, they're all different ideas. Some are arguing, especially business groups, that there's no need to legislate them. Uh, Unions are worried about how the use of smartphones has really creeped into our personal and home lives. Mm. And they're saying that's why these laws are needed. Uh, And some independent senators, so David Pocock and Jackie Lambie, have expressed reservations about the reforms. Uh, It's worth noting, if they are passed, it's not going to automatically mean, Antoinette, that our boss can't just call you and say, hey, what are you doing? We need your help on this story. It means that the ruling will apply nationally and then Fair Work or your company has to put that into your contract or your enterprise agreement or your award. So it'll move pretty slowly. And your boss could still call you for a shift. Uh, Oh, yes. The difference is that you don't have to answer it and they can't get mad if you don't answer it if that's worked into your contract or your agreement. Look, I'm really torn about this because I understand that smartphones and particularly with the hybrid work from home since the pandemic, that there 
it, it is harder and harder to have a begin work day and an end work day. Mm. But also a lot of people enjoy working yeah. that way. Um, and I'm thinking of people like mothers in particular who enjoy the flexibility because it means they can pop out of work and pick up kids or, or whatever it is and then get back online and send emails. Yeah, I certainly work like that and I work all sorts of hours. I do quite enjoy that flexibility. And so I wonder what will happen if that flexibility is no longer expected because I do my best work sometimes Mm. between the hours of 8pm and midnight because it's when I'm able to. Mm. And so I understand the creep into personal lives that other people want to cut off from. I just, it's just so complex when we have so many different people in the workforce and we're trying to be inclusive of different lifestyles. That's exactly right. And for us in the industry we work in, things happen Mm -hmm. at 3am, things happen at midnight. And sometimes I remember when the Queen died, I was calling my boss at 3am going, okay, what's the plan? Because we've got stuff that we need to roll out. And it was 3am. She was asleep, but she had to answer. Yeah. Speaking of when the Queen died, I actually got a call, a wake up call from our producer, Dan. He's like, <laughs> the Queen's dead. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I think the important thing with laws like this is protecting those who don't work that way. We accept it as part of our role, but there are lots of people who should not have to accept it. This is where bosses and employees need to have open honest Mm. lines of communication. And if you're an employee and you go, I'm not available after six, that's the end of my day, then you should have the right to turn your phone off and not even think about work. Uh, I think it's one of those laws that you could never have a blanket rule. It wouldn't work. I think it'll require negotiation between bosses and employees, but we'll see. Thank you so much for being here for the headlines today, Antoinette. Next up, it is our deep dive on stage three tax cuts and what they mean for you. If you've kept half an ear on the news in the past couple of weeks, you've probably heard people talking about the Stage 3 tax cuts. Now, it sounds pretty dry, but this is about your money in your bank account and also about the circumstances in which we as Australians let politicians get away with a broken promise. So let me explain. The original Stage 3 tax cuts were basically a plan to get rid of the whole tax bracket, meaning that everyone earning between $45,000 and $200,000 was going to pay the same 30% tax rate. This would have meant a big bonus at tax time this year for the richest among those people, and a much smaller bonus for people earning less and nothing for people in the lowest income bracket. These were legislated years ago when Scott Morrison was in power, but they were going to happen on July 1st this year. Now, Anthony Albanese has been saying over and over again since he's been PM that he will not be changing this policy. My word is my bond. And we said during the election campaign Uh, that we would maintain uh, the position that had already been legislated. But a couple of weeks ago, just before Australia Day, Albo broke that promise. Katie Gallagher is the Minister for Finance and the Minister for Women, here to explain why and what the new version of these tax cuts will mean for you. Minister, since the Prime Minister made this announcement of these changes, there's been plenty of criticism of the broken promise element of this. News poll makes it clear that pretty much most people support it anyway. But the PM did frame this as a matter of his personal integrity. So even if people like the new policy, can we trust what this government says going forward? 
Yeah, look, I think there's been a lot of discussion about this and we knew this uh, going into the decision. We knew that changing your position in politics is hard uh, and it comes with consequences. But when we considered that, we had to weigh that up against you know, not responding or the counterfactual, which is not doing anything, not changing our position. And that would have meant that for millions of Australians, they would have got a smaller tax cut or no tax cut at all at a time when people are doing it really tough. Uh, So, you know, we went into this knowing it would be difficult. Um, I guess our view was we needed to put the you know, make the right decision for the right reason uh, and then explain the change in position, front up, explain it. You know, it's not something politicians do lightly to change a position from what we took to the election, but it was just the right thing to do and therefore you wear the consequences. So you are taking a big political risk though Um, and given that you are taking this risk, why did you choose to give people an immediate tax cut rather than, for example, a complete overhaul of the tax system? Was this an opportunity missed? There's always people with views around tax reform and, you know, what you should do and what you shouldn't do. There's no shortage of ideas. I guess we were faced with the fact that we support tax cuts. Um, We support the return of bracket creep when it's responsible and affordable to do so. And the legislated tax cuts that were in place from the five years ago when Morrison put them to the parliament had an element of that to them, but we just wanted to see it distributed more evenly across the income brackets. So, you know, under the former plan, people under 45000 earning under $45,000 didn't get any tax cut at all. And, you know, young people, workers part-time, casual workers, that meant a hot millions of Australians would have missed out. So we think this is reform, but it is also relief. And, you know, tax reform is difficult in this country. I think we also need to be upfront and honest about that as well. So this, you know, allowed for tweaking of the Morrison plan, but allowed, you know, 11.5 million Australians to get a bigger tax cut and to get a tax cut right through the income scale. Yesterday, you said that people expect their governments to manage economic circumstances of the time, and that's why we've changed our position on tax. The housing crisis has only got worse during this period of government. Why should the government break this promise on tax cuts in order to fix the cost of living or help with the cost of living, but not get rid of negative gearing to help fix the housing crisis? Well, our position on housing has been to focus on supply. I think we've suffered from a decade of indifference from the former government who didn't see a role for the Commonwealth to play in social and affordable housing and leaning in on the supply side. And so we've got a shortage of housing, which you know, pushes prices up, pushes rents up. And so our focus on that has been around supply and increasing supply because that's the immediate thing you can do as opposed to changes to the tax arrangement. And the one we have put in place is the build to rent to try and incentivise investors to build for the rental market. And that was a change we put in the last budget. So we changed our position on tax. It was about immediate relief. Um, What could we do for immediate relief for people's household budgets? Those changes come in on the 1st of July. The best thing we can do on housing is to increase supply and work with states and territories and local government about getting rid of some of the blockages that have put supply constraints on housing. Uh, But, you know, you can't undo 
essentially 10 years of neglect in 18 months. This is, you know, shoulder to the wheel stuff and it's going to take some time, but we're on the case. Can we expect changes to negative gearing before the next election? The government has no plans around changing those tax arrangements. I'll tell you what we do have, though, we've got, because we do have quite a full book on tax. We've got high-end super balances, we've got PRRT, we've got multinational tax reform, and we've got these income tax arrangements and the legislation going into the parliament. Some of those pieces of legislation are stuck in the Senate and we need to get them done uh, so that we can put in place arrangements around high-balance super accounts and PRRT. And that's a pretty full book for anyone that's trying to get stuff through the Senate, which is one of my other jobs, uh, which is, you know, a pretty challenging chamber at the best of times. On uh, the impact that this package will have on women and men, you're the Minister for Women, how will the government's tax cut changes affect women and men differently? The proposed plan that we've put to the parliament today will significantly improve the situation for women taxpayers. So under the former arrangements, under the Morrison plan, the vast majority of the tax cuts went to men. And that's really because they were targeted at high income earners. And you see men dominate the high income brackets in this country. Women and their earning capacity is much more concentrated to the low income, low and middle income thresholds. And because we're evening this out, because we're spreading um, or sharing the benefits right through the income scale, it means all women taxpayers will get a tax cut and 90% of women taxpayers will get a bigger tax cut. And particularly those highly feminised industries like teaching, nursing, aged care, disability, early education and care, where we see a lot of women working in that workforce, they will be significant beneficiaries of uh, the new arrangements, which, you know, they'll get more tax back uh, and have more money in their pocket each fortnight. Why are the changes still skewed towards the rich? Well, I think under this plan, we were conscious that everyone get a tax cut. Stages one and two concentrated on the low and middle income brackets. This stage three, as under the Morrison plan, was much more skewed to people earning over 180000 This arrangement that we've put in place means everyone still gets a tax cut, Uh, but it's more evenly shared. So every single taxpayer gets a tax cut. The biggest beneficiaries are happening, you know, that occurs in the middle income brackets, but it still puts those on higher incomes still get a tax cut. And we think that's important too, returning bracket creep and providing relief right across the income scale. You mentioned that the most wealthy people in Australia, more of them are are, are men than women. And there's this quite shocking graph, I think, in the Treasury advice uh, that you received about the stage three tax cuts, which is that about half the people earning zero to $43,000 a year are women. But as the income goes up, the share of women earning it goes down so that only 30% of those people earning over $170,000 are women. What's the government doing about that problem? Well, that's a much bigger problem to solve, but again, we're happy to lean in on it. Um, We want to make sure that women are treated equally across the economy. It's one of the big constraints on gender equality in this country is women's economic independence or lack of in many situations. So we've got to come at this 
in a number of ways. We've got to ensure that we're dealing with the violence against women and children. That is a big economic handbrake on women uh, and their ability to earn and and live in the way they want to. But we've got to make sure we're dealing with wages in the highly feminised industries. We've got to look at how we get young girls into the jobs that are high paying and traditionally in those areas like STEM. You know, when I look at this problem, it's a problem that we have to come at from primary school all the way through a woman's life because there's periods within a woman's life where whether they're having children, caring for those children, caring for older people, having a relationship breakdown during violence where, you know, it really interrupts um, their earning capacity and we've got to try and deal with all of that. Otherwise, we're not going to see a shift to women getting into those higher income brackets. But we're determined to give it a crack and we've got a lot of work underway to make sure we do it, but it's not going to be solved with one single solution. And can the government guarantee that the cost of living is going to go down by the end of this term of government? Well, we're working on it. I mean, obviously, there's some things in our control and some things that aren't. You know, the global economic situation is uncertain, but we have to respond to that as it unfolds. But we're seeing good moderation in the inflation numbers, which is what it's been really hurting people either at the supermarkets, at the petrol station, with renting. Um, we're seeing that come off those high points of about a year ago and that's really welcome news. But we're going to keep working at it. This tax relief is one part of it. We've got to keep focused on cost of living measures and we'll do so in the budget. When uh, people are explaining this policy, there's a lot of percentages, a lot of numbers. I think a lot of people may not really still understand what these changes mean. Can you give us the 30-second elevator pitch for what, (laughs) what these changes are going to mean for people at July 1? Wow, that's a real test. So 30 seconds from July 1, every taxpayer in Australia will get a tax cut. 11.5 million Australians will get a bigger tax cut. Um, This provides relief at a time when people are doing it tough. Um, People should keep an eye on their pay packets because it'll come in uh, from the 1st of July. That was Katie Gallagher, Federal Minister for Finance and Minister for Women. And that's all we have time for for this morning's episode of The Briefing. Check your feed again at three this afternoon for your afternoon briefing. And we're always looking for your feedback. So hit us up on Instagram, send us a DM and hit the follow button. I'm Bension Siebert. Thanks for listening. Listener.